0: Welcome to the JPR Group Podcast, brought to you by the JPR Group of Baird Private Wealth Management. We're dedicated to bringing our clients, colleagues, and centers of influence the latest in wealth strategies, ideas, and information to keep you informed and confident. Also, listen in on conversations with industry leaders and interesting people from around the country that are changing the landscape of their businesses. This is the JPR Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. I'm your host for today, Drew Ritchie, and you are listening to the May 2022 Perry Ritchie Group Advisor Roundtable. I have here with me in studio, Miss Jacqueline Hunt and Andrew Boyles. Welcome, y'all.
1: Hey, thanks for having us. Hey,
0: Drew. It is good to be here today. Um, we've got a small group on hand, but we've got a long agenda Um, There, there's a lot to talk about, and one of these days, soon, I hope, we're going to be recording this, and we're not going to be in the middle of a market correction. That'll be nice, won't it? That will be nice. Yeah, so we'll take it. We're going to get to that. Uh, But first, we're going to start. We've asked Jacqueline to join us today, and we want to have a discussion around some changes that we have made within our practice within the advocate program. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about a lot about the advocate program on this podcast. It's a, it's a very unique role that we have in our team. Um, Jacqueline, you are our lead advocate last month, you and the advocate team recorded a podcast that was called the advocate advantage, correct? That is right. Yeah. Um, a lot of the listeners for the round table may, may not have picked up on that episode and, um, we just know that, that it's such a, a unique thing that's going on in our practice, how we're shifting the client service, um, where all of our clients are interacting with all of our team. They're assigned dedicated team members. So other than their advisor, tell me what, tell me what the advocate role is, is meant to accomplish for our clients.
1: The advocates are kind of an extension of your advisor. We sit in on client meetings just to be an extra set of ears. We're taking detailed notes as you meet, um, capturing any to-do or follow-up items. And then as the advocate for our client, we are then making sure that those things get done. So that's probably our biggest role, making sure that what the advisor says we're going to do gets done. And then, you know, we can help make sure, you know, if there are documents or tax returns, anything that a client should get to us. We'll, you know, follow up with them and make sure we get those just so that we can do our planning and our preparation.
0: So Jacqueline, um, you're, you're by definition on our team, not a financial advisor, but you're a certified financial planner. Mm -hmm. Recently, you worked through the certified private wealth advisor designation, which those are really the top two uh, kind of keystone designations in our industry that we would say. Um, so let me, let me put you on the spot a little bit and say, what do you think the main difference is in an advocate and an advisor in the client relationship?
1: Um, well, gosh, that's a really good question. Um, I feel like it's just kind of the standard of care, making sure that the client has everything they need when they need it. Um, you know, our advisors are, busy and a lot of times meet with clients out of the office so the advocates may be more available here at the office if a client has something urgent or kind of time sensitive you know we want to be here to field those calls and and get those questions answered in a really prompt manner even if the advisor is maybe with another client or out of the office for the day
0: sure so so the delivery of the advice the market discussion the investment management parts coming from the advisor team um you know, certainly, but that advocate role, you know, every client that is assigned a, a primary relationship manager, advisor, a primary advocate, it, it's a its a major upgrade to the client relationship and something we've invested greatly. And, Andrew, do you, you have something to add to that?
2: Yeah, I was just going to say one of the things that I've noticed <clears throat> the most is just in terms of that advocate role is really the execution. You know, when you think about how our industry has changed and going from a, a broker to you know, an assistant where
0: that's a bad word now, right? Yeah. A broker,
2: uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't like to say that. <laughs> but when you're when you're making trades and you just need help, maybe executing a certain trade, there's a limited amount of information involved there. But yeah. providing comprehensive wealth management and some of the advanced strategies that we implement with clients, having um, very high level certifications at multiple points, you know, on our team really help make sure that that. Execution is uh, is followed through for out of the office appointments or when things maybe aren't happening on the day. Clients are in the office and things take a while. It, um, having multiple team members with that understanding and that
0: knowledge really makes it very efficient. Right. Yeah. So if if you all missed the last episode that Jacqueline and her advocate team put out, um, it's called the Advocate Advantage. It's one or two episodes ago. Sometime in early mm-hmm. April. A great listen uh we can really learn about about that unique role in the team. Mm-hmm. So thanks for doing that, Jacqueline, and sure. thanks for being on here. She's uh, gonna be participating in the rest of our podcast as well. Um, so yeah, thank you for being here. Um, with that, I'd like to just switch uh, switch gears a little bit. Sean and I spent last week um, at the Barons Advisors Teams Conference. Um, that was in Nashville, Tennessee this year. That conference is normally hosted in Las Vegas. It's invitation only. Uh, So we're very fortunate that our team was invited to that. We hope that that's going to continue, that we'll continue to be invited year after year because uh, although Sean Perry and I were the only attendees this year, we would love to bring our team back to that um, again in the future. So, yeah, just a little bit about that. we there's probably, you know, I, I we didn't look at the attendance numbers, but it was a full room, probably a thousand people or so. And it was teams really from all across the country, a lot in the major firms like Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley and UBS, uh, some regional groups, but really just bringing together top teams from across the country teams from, you know, like ours of six to 10 people uh, up to teams that were, you know. 40 or 50 strong in multiple locations, all uh, with very unique and specialized roles. So we attend those things for one reason and one reason only, so we can serve our clients better um, and basically enhance the level of, of, of the operation that we're managing. We are part of a big firm. Baird's a big company, but the Perry Ritchie Group's not. And the 10 of us here within our walls are responsible for managing our clientele, how we see fit. And that's how we get ideas. Um, and Jacqueline, to your point, we're gone. Okay. We're out of the office when we're doing that. And sure. people still call the office, mm-hmm. right? So those team members that are um, in, in a, a client support role there become even more a, a, um, an important part of that wealth management experience, we would say.
2: Drew, could you just maybe elaborate some? I know um, you and Sean last year, I believe, went to the Dave Ramsey's Entree Leadership. Um, you're in some coaching programs, so when, when you think about some of the conferences and things that that we as a team attend um, for those ideas, what was different about this conference with Barrons compared to some of the other things that you've done?
0: Sure, yeah. So this conference was specific to our industry. It was all wealth management. It was all teams. And it was uh, specific to you know, team leaders around how they run and manage their practices. So it was not um, topical in that we learned about new wealth management strategies or had very detailed investment or economic discussions. Now, we did have some Washington update and some things around um, some industry trends for sure in the group sessions. But the difference would be that it was mostly peer-to-peer sharing. Um, you're hearing directly from team managers, group directors, um, advanced planners within their teams, and just hearing best practices from all around the country of of the best teams. You know, Jacqueline, or you, you Andrew, mentioned uh, that the industry's changed a lot. It used to be more of a, a broker and an assistant, right? Just two people at the most that were managing clients. And um, that is becoming much less common. I won't say antiquated, but much less common. There are still need for those types of engagements occasionally. Um, but these larger wealth management teams are becoming the industry standard because just like that doctor that maybe used to make house calls and then you had a general practitioner, the industry's changed. One, one person or a small group of people just have a hard time providing the type of services that a group can, um, so really, I would say the, the peer-to-peer, industry-specific sharing and the invitation-only mm-hmm. portion of it means that um, you're going to be assured that it's really just the top-tier groups around the country. We had to go late and, and really couldn't say no to the to the invitation, especially since it was in Nashville. And we met a couple others that were from our area. Uh, again, this is the first time the conference has been in Nashville and will likely be attending in the future and, and taking more of the group.
2: Great. Well, thanks for, for going and uh, learning on behalf
0: of the team. Yeah, yeah. We hope to see some some pretty actionable results from it. So let's switch gears to um, to Washington D.C. legislative update. There's some things happening in Congress right now um, that are could could potentially have an impact on some of our clients. We want to discuss um, as well as some planning strategies that Andrew's going to tell us a little more, more about.
2: Yeah. So we've taken a little bit of a, a hiatus from talking about Washington, D.C., just um, with some of the market activity over the first part of the year. Um, but just recently, the IRS came out with some proposed regulations regarding the SECURE Act, which came back, which was released back in uh, 2019 and took effect in, in 2020.
0: You and I were talking about that before, uh, before we went live on our recording, that the IRS is Now, in May of 2022, coming out with um, dialogue around how people need to navigate changes that were made in December of 2019. Just talk a little bit more about that. So,
2: in a nutshell, you have, um, so we'll take the SECURE Act, for example. So, specifically, the issue we're talking about here is prior to 2020, if you inherited an IRA, Individual Retirement Account... Um, generally now there's, you know, uh, some other scenarios, but generally if you're a non-spouse beneficiary, then you could, what we call stretch that IRA out over the course of your lifetime and take what's called a required minimum distribution. Um, so that, that was a rule beginning in 2020, the rules changed where again, generally if you're a non-spouse beneficiary, you had a 10 year window in which you had to fully distribute the account. And so you, you have this legislation that pass through the SECURE Act, but the IRS through the, the revenue code um, actually is the kind of the, the law in terms of application and how it's uh, viewed from a, from a tax standpoint. So you've got— So Congress makes the law, the IRS enforces it. That's right. So okay. Congress makes the law, they draft it, they implement it, or I guess rather the, the IRS is more responsible for implementing it from a tax standpoint. So you've got, uh, two of these, you know, government bodies, Congress and the IRS that act independently of each other, but work together as you know, there's changes to both. So that's why when we say just recently there were proposed regulations, sure. um, when you think about the secure act and how much was in there, um, there's a lot that's open to interpretation yeah, and, and and things that could be interpreted differently depending on the way you look at it. And so that's why, um, you know, most commonly, um, most people in our industry and, and uh, experts that we've, you know, followed and listened to would have said that that 10-year rule for inheriting an IRA where you have 10 years to distribute it, that there was no required minimum distribution
0: within that time period. Right. When it first came out, people were speculating that you could withdraw it all on the last day of the 10th year and not touch it for 10 years.
2: That's right. Because in, in the law, in the Secure Act, there was no specific language to that, which is where the IRS comes in and and, and clarifies some of those rules. But it takes time for them to implement that. So the whole reason we're bringing this up is because recently, again, this, these proposed regulations from the IRS came out and said that there may be a required minimum distribution necessary for beneficiaries of IRAs that the original owner were already taking RMDs. So I'll, I'll say that again because right. there, there's a lot of moving pieces there. So if you inherit an IRA – and the person, the account owner, that you inherited it from was already taking required minimum distributions. And not your spouse. And not your spouse. That's right. Then you may be required to continue or also take a required minimum distribution during that 10-year window. So you can no longer just take it all on your 10. So we're bringing it up, not necessarily to give you advice on this podcast as to what you should do or shouldn't do, but to let you know that this is a, a fluid situation. We are monitoring it to the extent that we can. Uh, our firm Bayer is providing us updates as these proposals and regulations become uh, released. So, you know, we would really just encourage you if, if you're in that situation where you inherited an IRA from 2020 on or beyond to to just have an open conversation with your advisor about strategies, what may be best for you. Because at the end of the day, um, if you've only got 10 years to distribute the account anyway, most people are going to be taking out some portion each year to try and spread out the tax burden generally. So it may not be, you know, it it may not be something that they missed based on the strategy that that they've already been implementing.
0: So our, if, if you're a client of our practice and you're listening to this podcast today, you may say, well, that, that how many people could that possibly apply to? Well, our advocate team has already reviewed our entire book of business, mm-hmm. right? And we, Jacqueline, you provided to our advisor team yesterday at our team weekly team meeting mm-hmm. a list of 20.
1: Maybe tw- 15 to 20.
0: 15 to mm-hmm. 20 people that this is going to directly impact. Right. So you can bet that that's on our agenda. Yep. For our summer meetings, Mm -hmm. we're tracking those. We know who they are. You've got until the end of December. Uh, There's likely to be some more direction released on that. But these are are prime examples of the things that we have to stay um, current on, right, and address with every single client. Um, Because if we missed one, that would be a complete failure of the system. So, Mm, yeah. That's right. Anything else in there that we need to be monitoring? I know that in the last two years, there's been a lot of, uh, anxiety over where tax rates are going to be and estate planning laws, Any, anything else happening as a part of um, the um, kind of the commentary on yeah. secure 1.0 and then 2.0 is, you know, in Congress right now as well.
2: That's right. Yeah. So we, we were just talking about um, with the beneficiary uh, implications from the secure act, which was passed back in 2019 um, going through Congress right now, is what's called secure 2.0. So an enhancement uh, or or further changes. Um, The big proposal uh, in this new round of legislation uh, is delaying required minimum distributions um, up to age 75. um, And that would be done gradually um, with that uh, change occurring over a a several year period. So right now um, you have to begin taking required minimum distributions when you in the year that you turned
0: 72. Which which came about because of 1.0. Yep,
2: which which that was changed from age 70 and a half um, in the SECURE Act uh, a couple years ago. So now they're looking at pushing that back even further through a a multi-year process. Um, But most of the other provisions in SECURE 2.0 that we're looking at uh, pertain more to employer-sponsored retirement plans and some of the flexibility and rules that, that apply to them. So not as, as many for um, individual investors. And you mentioned from a tax standpoint, uh, that, that's gotten kind of quiet. You know, we're, we're approaching a midterm election here later in the year. So point. Um, there, there's not as much uh, discuss about discussing about tax changes just with that on the horizon. Right.
0: When you start messing with the top bracket, capital gains rates, estate taxes, uh, votes, come into play mm-hmm. there and uh, not a lot of activity in a, in a midterm election year. That's right. Likely. Um, let's switch gears a little bit uh, for time's sake. Uh, lot to talk about in the markets right now. We're uh, as we said today, May 3rd, we're one day in advance of the federal reserves meeting, wrapping up and making an announcement tomorrow on the fed funds rates. Um, what do you think is going to happen there?
2: So it, it's expected. Um, of course, expectations and reality can be two different things, but, you know, there's a lot of anticipation for the Fed to increase the the Fed funds rate, which is their benchmark interest rate, um, by 50 basis points. So that's
0: 0.5%. So that would be, a lot would consider that to be two increases, right? Like a, they usually oftentimes go a quarter at a point in time. So... If they normally go at a quarter of a point, why would they have a more aggressive increase?
2: Yeah, so when when they started this um, rate increase cycle back in March, they increased rates by twenty five basis points or 025 percent, and that was the, you know the uh, the pace, if you will, at which they or kind of the number that they would increase them by each uh, each time each, each increase, um, but the Fed really has the job of trying to of course, manage the economy, but really manage inflation. And so, you know, we're in this environment right now where inflation year over year, I believe it's up over 8%. Um, and so um, it's it just hasn't come down as quickly as anticipated based on some other supply chain um, issues and, and backlog. So you've got, when you think about inflation, the Fed has some influence over that with um, where interest rates are at. And the, you know, the private sector, if you will, has some influence over that with um, the supply chain, right? So if, if more goods are, you know, stuck on shipping containers in in the seas and they can't get um, brought into the country and processed and um, supply is lower by default, prices have to go up. Right. And so um, there's these two factors that work together um, around inflation. So, that's what the fed is doing is they're looking at the economy and wanting to try to uh, keep inflation under control. And so they're having to monitor as well. What's, what's going on from, from the private sector as well. So going to 50 basis points would mean that they feel the need to maybe step in and and be a little more aggressive in that approach to uh,
0: keep inflation from increasing. So they the Fed's two main goals are controlling inflation and stimulating the economy. Um, they've come out and said that they're not a, not concerned if they have to purposefully slow growth to keep inflation in check. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that besides the the two quarters of COVID shutdown, Q1 and 2 of 2020, we've been 12 or more years, I think was the, the statistic that we we came across, since an actual recession in the U.S., which is the longest kind of in modern history, you know, post-Great post, post Great Depression. Um, so it's interesting that, mm-hmm. you know, they would take that stance. It, uh, Warren Buffett had the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting last week, first time live uh, in Omaha since 2019, and he had some remarks around the Federal Reserve's job. Um, you want to share Kind of his comments around that. Yeah, he he went as far as to call um, the
2: Fed chair uh, Powell a hero, you know, and, yeah. and basically, you know, applauded him for doing what was necessary at that moment in time to help um, our economy stay afloat, referring to the Fed decreasing interest rates to zero back in early 2020. Um, and so that's one thing that we have to remember. In, in the midst of all this is we talk about interest rates going up, you know mortgage and the effect that has on consumer interest rates. Um, but you know zero zero percent interest rates or quarter of a percent interest rates at that level are not normal. you know the, that we were at that point because of extreme measures to help our economy stay afloat in the midst of a pandemic and now we're getting back to a normal, level of rates, um, which, which is healthy
0: for our economy. Let me, let me ask you to, to give us a couple comments. And I'm again, kind of switching gears, but love Warren Buffett, just classic conservative, you know, feel like if, if your granddad was an investor, what he would be like, um, Warren Buffett, uh, invest just in things he knows and keeps things simple. Berkshire Hathaway is, I think in, in her words from, from the, the conference killing the S and P this year, right? Berkshire Hathaway stocks positive for the year with the S and P being down. And I do want to talk about some different index performances, but Andrew speak to uh, Buffett's comments on some of the new uh, financial engineering and products like cryptocurrency uh, that his comments around that from the week.
2: Yeah. So really, really two points there. Um, Warren Buffett and his business partner, Charlie Munger, um, they they weren't um, as fond of the general uh, market environment right now, and, and even went as far to call it um, a gambling parlor, um, and, and and we're really referring to um, when you think about um, the access to the markets, um, which we could probably have a whole podcast on on that as well. But when you look at things like Robinhood, um, you know E Trade, very low cost. Um, trading, there's no friction, there's no transaction or very little transaction cost. Um, the The market, you know, over the last couple of years has rewarded risk takers and has caused some to become somewhat numb to the risk that they're taking. Um, you know, you hear stories about people in the break room, you know, at, at lunch saying, you know, I bought XYZ stock and so... Now their coworker downloads the app, downloads an app, uh, you know, and can buy that not based because they like that company or because of what that company's earnings are, but because of hearsay yeah. or, or speculation. And so um, when, when you have information like that, that creeps into the market and there's more trading, there's more volume based on that, that's where he's referring to this gambling right. mentalities because <clears throat> people are not making uh, not all people are making buying and selling decisions based on fundamental information.
0: Right. Um, and to kind of, kind of bring that full circle. One of the comments I read was that if investing was a world of air fryers, Warren Buffett would be a slow cooker, right? So mm-hmm. he's not, not trying to time the market, not taking risks and uh, doing that, but they did add 51 billion with a B, 51 billion added to their stock portfolio in the mm-hmm. first quarter. So he doesn't believe in timing. He doesn't call that buying the dip, just being opportunistic and having cash available to, you know, add to your portfolio at a discount. Mm-hmm. Um, they also said, and I will switch gears with this, that uh, uh, over the weekend, so their their conference was last week, they said, oh, by the way, we have no idea what the market's going to do next week.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, you've got two of the most notable investors in the world in Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and excuse me. And, um, you know, I think Warren Buffett's 91, Charlie Munger's 98, wow, 97.
0: Yeah. Some P- pushing, getting close to a hundred.
2: So, you know, again, two most incredible, well-known investors and they don't even pretend
0: to know yeah. what the market's going to do the next, you know, day. So let's, let's give just a little bit of perspective on where the market sets right now. Um, and then kind of wrap that uh, wrap that back into some education around the indexes, and then we're going to close up the podcast for today. So we encourage um, our investors to, uh, when we talk about the market, look at something a little deeper than just the Dow Jones. So the Dow Jones is thirty stocks um, year to date um, as of Tuesday or as of Monday the second, we'll say, uh, where our information where we get our information from. The Dow's down just a little over 9%. The S&P down further, about a little over 13%. So the 500 stocks are down collectively more than the top 30. Again, we've got to take that perspective. And then the NASDAQ, mostly tech stocks, down north of 21% over that same time period. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so those are are three of the most common benchmarks or indexes used to gauge um, what the what stocks are doing. And as you know, based on the numbers you just gave, there's some variation there. They're yeah. they're not all right in line with each other. Oh, and so it's a lot of variance. It's a lot of variance. And so, you know, we've talked about this before, but it, it's just important to remember and, and think about when you hear those terms, so again, the Dow Jones, it's a basket of 30 companies. So every other company could have a, a wonderful day, but if those 30 companies have a bad day, that index specifically is, is down. Um,
0: and some of those companies are so, such a large part of it, they're not equally weighted, right? So some, one company, we'll say Amazon or Apple, could be such a large percentage that it may impact it just because of something that happened in their you know, in their specific um, sector. sector. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, and with the Dow Jones, um, we don't have to go all the way down down this rabbit hole, but um, the Dow Jones is technically what we call a price-weighted uh, benchmark, meaning that um, how its return gets calculated is based off of the, the price or the, like the dollar amount of the stocks inside of it, whereas the S&P is what we would call market-weighted, meaning the larger the company, the more influence, the more weighting they have in that um, index. So with the S&P, you have about 500 companies, but those 500 companies do not all share equally in that index. You've got a handful at the top um, that, because they're just larger companies, um, they make up a significant amount of the index. So, So to your point, you're exactly right. You can have one or two companies that, you know, have a bad day, you know, but their influence over the S&P is going to be more, more significant than some of the other companies in there.
0: What about, what about growth stocks versus value stocks right now? So the S&P 500 has a, a mix of both. We would define, you know, value stocks as your dividend payers, more longstanding cyclical type companies. Growth tends to be more, um younger companies typically uh tech stocks fall into that definition. They're not paying dividends, they're retaining earnings and trying to get bigger. Growth outperform value the last couple years. What are we seeing right now?
2: Yeah, so to sort the year and, and I'm I'm looking at some information that actually runs through just the end of April. Um so I think you were quoting some information that was including the first day or two of May, but through the end of April the the Russell 1000 growth index which just looks at growth companies um, was down approximately 20% compared to the Russell 1000 value which looks at those values
0: companies was down uh, approximately 6.3%. Yeah, so That's a pretty big... And we look at the S&P we said 13. So mm-hmm. one's 20 one's 6, the S&P's 13 so I, I think the point we're trying to make is that you really gotta dig into what the information that you're looking at, right? Because you're our clients and people that are listening into this are taking all of this and and running it through a lens and comparing their statement what's their statement down right and talk a little bit about the diversification that our clients own what what do our clients own of all of these indexes
2: yeah they're they're you know for the typical balanced diversified portfolio they're going to have numerous asset classes and you know um Speaking to the the growth versus value conversation, you know you can identify a stock in a number of different ways. It can be a large cap, mid cap, small cap. So you can identify it by size. You can also identify it by the characteristics of growth and value. So, um,
0: and and there's even a a third kind of category that is core, core or yep. blend, where they may look like either one at different types in their business cycle. You're, you're
2: exactly right. So, you know, when speaking to these Russell 1000 growth, Russell 1000 value indexes that, that I just quoted, you could say both of those are large large cap stocks. And so those those are large developed companies, but they have completely different characteristics. They obviously have different um, business profiles. So we haven't even gotten into tech versus utilities versus discretionary versus state, you know, there's, there's a number of ways that you can identify companies. And so, um, again, going back to what, what you were saying with our clients, um, most of them, you know, are, are going to have some type of blend of multiple asset classes, multiple sectors, um, between equities and fixed income. They're, they're going to be, uh, diversified in several different ways. Obviously we would have to sit down and look at, um, how each of them is, you know, allocated individually. But um, again, the point we're trying to make is that you can talk about the market and quote the market in a in a lot of different aspects. Um, and most of the time, I'm not going to say never, but most of the time, it doesn't correlate to somebody's portfolio, right? Especially when
0: the bond market that we'll say.
2: We haven't even talked about that today. Right. We, didn't we, have, <laughs> we haven't
0: even got into the bond market. Nearly 100% of our clients, and it may be 100% of our clients, own some bonds, some fixed income in your portfolio. That's down close to double digits over the first quarter of the year, year to date anyway. And as interest rates can continue to rise, that's going to cause headwinds for fixed income. So there are challenges for investors. Um, we've got more – that we, that we want to talk about, but for sake of time, um, we're probably going to save some of these topics for next time. You know, we did Q1 um, economic data came out down 1.4%. That's likely to be revised two or three times before they land on a, on a hard number. That doesn't mean our annualized growth rate as a country, our GDP, uh, gross domestic product, is negative. But a recession is defined as two negative quarters consecutively of you know, negative growth, negative GDP. Um, so we're seeing inflation. We're having some negative negativity. Stagflation is a word people are using now that that would be defined as inflation during a recession. OK, that's better than deflation. Decreasing prices <laughs> or negative prices uh, are not good for a healthy economy. But uh, these are things that that are happening that our clients are listening to, um, that we're monitoring. And if if you all have conversations, you're listening to it. You're you're a client of ours, or not yet a client of ours. We're happy to to talk in more detail one on one about these things, and we're going to keep bringing them up uh, month after month. So yeah. we've uh, we've really just scratched the surface on a, on a lot of these topics. We've just scratched the surface. So one one last little comment: the S and P down year to date. You know, just. Uh, what, what did we what do we quote earlier? Just just over thirteen percent. The average since nineteen eighty intra year decline from the top of the year to the bottom of the year, right at fourteen percent. That's what it feels like. It doesn't feel good, right? It, it it actually feels terrible. There's uncertainty every day. You're not sure what's going to happen, and we'll never know. The day that we hit the bottom, we won't. Nobody's going to say, whew, glad that's over." No, we won't know for. 60 days, 90 days, six months. That, oh hey, that was that was the bottom of the market when that happened. So mm-hmm. that's uh th- This is what it feels like, y'all, when you're in the middle of it, and we are currently. Uh, but we're here. We're working. We're talking to clients every day. We're working hard for people, and we're trying to bring information to people because now, uh, Morgan Housel, Psychology of Money, says that your successes as an investor is not determined by the years spent on cruise control, but how you act in Punctuated moments of terror. That's his quote. That's maybe a little dramatic, but it it can be terrible when your statement's going down and you're losing money every month. We know that's hard on people, and and we're here for 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 people. We hate that when people mm-hmm. feel uneasy about their long term plan. We want people to have confidence and clarity. So, thank you both for being here today, Jacqueline. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Wonderful insight. Um, we look forward to being right back here in studio next month. Um, With more, a lot more to unpack, I'm sure. Thank you all for listening to May 2022 Perry Ritchie Group Advisor Roundtable. See you next time.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. You may visit our website at thejprgroup.com for more information about our team or like us on Facebook. If you'd like to speak to a financial advisor on our team, please contact our office at 270-467-9664. We hope to hear from you soon. This podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or instrument or to participate in any particular trading strategy. The information is considered to be from reliable sources, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. The opinions expressed are those of the show's host and guest and are not necessarily those of Robert W. Baird & Company, Inc. Baird does not offer tax or legal advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered by Robert W. Baird & Company, Inc., a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor, member FINRA and SIPC.